Today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking about the big changes to Tesla's Powerwall, Toyota and Subaru announcing an EV SUV, Fiat's electric GT 700 kilowatt charging, I mean, talk about fast charging, and much more. And as usual, I'm joined by the guy who puts bit into bit, Ricky Roy. How you doing, Ricky? Doing good, Matt. How you doing? How, how was your week so far? It's been going well. It's been going very well. I released a video this week on, uh, what was it? Solid state batteries and when they're actually going to arrive. And uh, yeah, big question mark still on that, but it was a fun video to do. The views have been good. So clearly people are waiting for that news. And does that mean Toyota's going to make an electric vehicle? Maybe we'll talk about that. I don't, <laughs> I, um, don't have a video yet this week. I might publish one tomorrow. I might have to wait till next week. But I'm finding it hard to hit that one-week cadence at this point. But hopefully, next couple of months, hopefully I can start to, yeah. Yeah, your videos have been really good. So if people aren't watching them, get over to his channel and start watching his videos. I appreciate that. All right, so shall we get started? Yes, let's go. The first story is <laughs> something we were just <laughs> joking about. We've kind of kind of been joking that Toyota's sitting on their hands until uh, solid-state batteries, which I guess was not true because they have revealed the electric SUV it's a concept at this point, but I think this is going to be what it looks like. And the reason I say it is because it looks a lot like their RAV4. So it has what I, I perceive as something that of some DNA that has some Toyota DNA into it. And they what they've done is they've taken a playbook that they, uh, out of the, their own playbook, they've done this in the past working with Subaru on the BRZ, which was a little two-door coupe for Subaru and the FRS for Toyota which I think became the A86 after the Scion brand was uh, shut down. But the idea was, when you build a coupe, do people want coupes? Toyota sells a ton of crossovers and Corollas, and they weren't really sure if they should go spend a billion dollars building out a new coupe, so they partnered, shared the cost with Subaru, and as a result, they both got to get a car out of it. Then they did the same thing with the Supra with BMW, so they're basically in this world where if, if it isn't like core meat and potatoes, they're going to go work with another company on it. And this is the same thing again, because now they're announcing a partnership with Subaru. And here's, here's the, the vehicle. I think it looks great. Has a little bit of like Cadillac Lyric in the back, maybe, in the little, in the taillight section. But looks like a RAV4, uh, which is a good thing. The new RAV4s are quite good looking. This is built on their new platform. They're calling it the ETNGA platform. And from what it sounds like, they're going to be working with Subaru on on something that's going to be foundationally built to be electric, which is all good news. The funny thing here is the naming convention, which I think is a little bit, a little bit funny. It's called the Toyota BZ4X, and that's a kind of a terrible name. Actually, it's kind of a mouthful. Um, sounds like a printer or like a refrigerator model number, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what it stands for is Beyond Zero 4X, so Beyond Zero. And the reason I was reading an article. Uh, not this one, <laughs> they're calling it that, is because they want to be able to continue to call their plug-in hybrids and their other kind of sillier things, uh, zero emissions or like PZ, you know, partial zero or zero. So this is beyond zero because it's electric, <laughs> apparently. So <laughs> Okay. A <laughs> little, little interesting, but hey, look, they're they're doing this. To me, it's st- it still seems to be a very pragmatic approach. Toyota does not seem fully convinced of, of the electric vehicle future. So they're doing the same thing they did with their sports coupes, which, I mean, you know, Matt, sports coupes are dying off. They don't sell very much anymore. No one's really buying them. So rather than spend a billion bucks on a new Celica or Supra, which is what they were known for in the 80s and 90s, partner up with Subaru. So that's what they're doing again. But good news, I guess. What, what do you think? 
I would say it's good news. And on top of that, I think it's a good looking car. I thought it's a it's a very sleek outside. I like the in the interior is very traditional looking, but still it's a it's a nice looking car. Um, yay was my first reaction when I finally saw saw hey they're they're finally showing us something that they're doing. Um, and the fact that they're also saying that was it this is the first of seven. What was it by uh, twenty twenty five? So right. hopefully there's gonna be more to come from this. But again, for me, the thing I really liked was just the look of it and the fact that they're even just announcing anything at all. Yeah, and they are. We don't really know too much about timing, but it will come to North America, which is great. Clearly looking at the car, that car is for Americans. Like that's exactly the kind of car that yeah. sells really well here. And, um, you know, details are still kind of kind of sparse as far as what we'll know in terms of range and everything else. But we know they're doing it. We know they're Toyota. They're going to do it, and um, it should be pretty compelling, hopefully. Hopefully, it's not like some 110-mile range thing or something, which which would be <laughs> goofy. But I guess they're not the, – the rumors we talked about previously with Tesla, maybe that's not going to happen. That Maybe it was just a – or maybe they're going to do another model with that. I did mention that they do have a partnership with Subaru for one sports car, and then they have a partnership with BMW for another. Yeah. When you kind of share platform technology, that's kind of the joy is you're not really – like beholden or you know, all your eggs aren't in one basket like they are for GM and and VW, but we shall see. But it is good news. I, I think it's a good looking car. And there are people, and you probably know people like this as well, who will not buy an electric vehicle until name brands that they trust. So for yes. me, when it comes to trust, Honda and Toyota like spring out above all the rest. I know a lot of people who wouldn't buy any car unless it was built by those companies. So this is good for, for people who are open to the idea, but want to see something about tradition from a company that they've had experiences with before. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, I know people that weren't buying EVs until Ford came out with the Mustang Mach-E. And there's definitely going to be people I know that will be the same way with Toyota. So it's 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 nice to see them finally joining in, and we'll start to see more people joining the EV kind of family, which should be good. So the next story is Tesla creates a new team to accelerate the use of the materials in their products. And they've already had a cross-functional team that does this work that's been spanning between Tesla and SpaceX. And it was led by uh, Charles Kuman, I think is his name. Uh, they developed things like the new aluminum alloys that were used in the Starship and the Cybertruck, the upcoming Cybertruck. But this is a new team that's specifically for Tesla. And it's being led by um, a man named David Nelson. And in the job postings, this is where the article came from, was job postings that were put up on LinkedIn. And he put posts up that said, this is a new team where I get to build from scratch. It's a chance to do advanced development with world-class material scientists and product design teams. If you're a broadly talented designer or engineer, please take a look at this job posting and apply. As a design engineer on the team, you will bridge the gap between material science and, and, part, science, and part design. That can mean many different things depending on the material process, and on any given day, you might design a prototype, tooling to make a trial part, work with vendors to perfect a process, perform large design space studies and more. So most companies have material scientists like this on board. I mean, Apple has a huge material science team. Most companies like that do. And this is this is really kind of cool because this is specifically just for Tesla, where, as I mentioned before, it was more of a cross-functional thing between SpaceX and Tesla. So there's a lot of cool things that this could bring about. What's your, what's your take on this? Yeah, and Charles uh, Kuman is actually from Apple. He was part of Apple's alloy team. So, yep. again, just that kind of you know, robbing each other of all their tech talent. It's a it's a really fascinating time to be alive and pe to be really good at what you do. The the Cybertruck to me kind of 
symbolizes the the intersection of all this stuff because there's going to be uh, stainless steel, which they'll share with SpaceX and Starship. So then there's going to be a lot of consideration around. In my Starship video, people always ask, how do you deal with shielding from radiation and stuff? So is there something that they're, is there something in terms of like the strength? Is there something they can incorporate with that? And all that benefit means you can make this stainless steel at volume for both vehicles, uh, the Starship and for the Cybertruck. And also we talked about last week, when you're talking about the giga casting machines, when you're, when you're going to have huge uh, casting machines that you're going to build entire rear ends of, of, of vehicles from, you need to have special alloys of aluminum, which they're going to have. That way you don't have to do a heat treat afterward. So there just seems to be this focus on material science that maybe other car companies don't really care about. They kind of go, what's the latest strength? Okay, great. We'll take that. We'll, we'll put it into this form and there we go. And it feels like Tesla just keeps reimagining and rethinking from the ground up. So really fascinating stuff. Uh, to me, material science was always one of those classes in college that was fascinating. Um, there's just so much to it. And it sounds like a lot of really good breakthroughs will happen as a result of this. So really excited to see what comes up next. And what will be the next thing that they, they revolutionize? I'm not sure, but I'm sure uh, we'll hear more when they, when they do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the next one <laughs> um, almost made Mr. Farrell take a double take. The FIA, which is the Federation Internationale de Automobile, FIA, they've announced that they're going to establish a 700-kilowatt charging standard as a part of their race regulations, which, you know, I will say this is really important stuff because a lot of the cutting-edge things that we get in our consumer automobiles comes from race divisions of cars. Uh, if you remember, like, like VTEC and Vanos from BMW's cars, some of this really cool cutting-edge stuff happens on the racetrack and then kind of fizzles down to their uh, more common cars. But they did some, I think they said a little back-of-the-napkin uh, math. 60% of the, the battery capacity, which is 87 kilowatt hours, is about 52 kilowatt hours. And at 700 kilowatts of charging rate, that <laughs> is a charge in four and a half minutes, which... Honestly, when you factor in putting your credit card information and stuff, that's less than pumping gasoline. So yeah. if this were to happen, that's officially the end of that argument about charging speed. Um, but you can imagine the infrastructure you would need to support 700 kilowatt charging per endpoint. And you know, if you have a like a, a, a station or stalls where there's 20 cars, uh, that could get pretty intense. On the racetrack, obviously, they're going to be able to handle that. But really cool. And I think the the excitement for a future where we have electric racing series imagine if it wasn't just kind of like for a smaller niche audience who like sustainability but imagine if like f1 people were watching electric cars because i was reading a story this week that lamborghini is giving up on the dream of getting better and better zero sixty times they basically they're saying forget that we know we're never going to beat evs on that front we're going to go after handling it's like yeah it sounds like you get the message that you're not going to be able to compete and eventually when you have this kind of charging and you have this kind of capacity, that will mean pretty much the end of all that sound and and uh, internal combustion engine racing, which will be hard for some people. But I, I really think this, I'm not sure how they're doing it. They didn't really get into the details about like, how are they cooling it? Is there special chemistries involved? But really cool. 700 kilowatts sounds pretty yeah. amazing to me. Yeah. My first reaction when I read this was it reminded me a little bit, it's going to be a weird connection, but like video games. It's like when it comes to personal computers, video games really pushed the boundaries so far that 
new graphics cards are always trying to one-up each other and they really push the industry forward so video games are kind of like the trickle down of technology into broader consumer electronics and it's like this feels the same way to me it's like this is such a niche little thing but eventually if this tech really starts to work out well it's like i could see this slowly trickling out broader through the industry um so hopefully at some point we'll see 700 kilowatt charging you know at mega chargers and stuff around the around the world but it's like it's gonna be a while before we get there the one part of this that confused me was it's still four minutes to charge your car up and that's to the 60 percent range they talked about in the article for these cars that's a pretty long pit stop for a race <laughs> to pull over and charge up for four minutes yeah it it sounds great for us especially if you road trip yeah. and you need 30 or 40 minutes to charge but that is still a long pit stop those f1 pit stops it's like Here's 50 gallons of gasoline, four tires, you're off, you know, in like 25 yeah. seconds or less. So, yeah, it is still a, a little more of a, maybe they can have a nice casual, leisurely stretch, you know. I don't know. <laughs> Get a couple it of is a little bit of a, of, a re, of a retraining. By the way, um, our, our viewers, so Bong Hollywood mentions ABS, anti-lock brakes, comes from F1, and hybrid yeah. systems in general come from F1. So There you go. Um, those are the kinds of things that happen when, when money is not in that's really yeah. what it comes down to, which is what racing that's is. That's what I thought about video games. Is like people buying the RTX 3090 cars, which are really expensive. Right. In four or five years, that technology is going to be 150 bucks. That's going to be just slapped into every computer that's made. So it's it's the early adopters who spend all the money, help to push things forward and make it cheaper in the long run for everybody else. So it's going to be neat to see how this plays out over the next five, 10 years. So next up, is um, a little bit of a kind of, there's two stories that kind of go back to back for this. But the first story is, this is the last week to get Tesla solar without a power wall. And not even just that, it's the last time you can get a power wall without solar. Yeah, actually, that's already gone though. But right now, it's what they're doing. Right. <laughs> this, is, this is a very kind of controversial thing. And I've got so many thoughts on this. Because basically at this point, starting next week, if you want to get solar or powerwall you have to get them together they're going to be a bundled product no matter what which uh anyway elon uh tweeted about this saying starting next week tesla solar panels and solar roof will only be sold as an integrated product with tesla powerwall battery uh, solar power will be fed exclusively to the powerwall powerwall will interface only between the utility meter and a house main breaker panel enabling super simple install and a seamless whole house backup during utility dropouts. And part of the reason for this is this is where it's kind of like, it's all speculation because there's still not enough ration. They, they didn't really explain why they're doing this. So one aspect could be for this, as you mentioned, simpler installs, which could in theory make it cheaper. Uh, but that seems questionable to me because depending on where you are in the country, the economics for a for battery system don't make sense. So for those areas of the country now, if you want to get Tesla as your brand for solar, your cost just went up dramatically because a battery is going to come with it, whether you want it or not, which is really frustrating. And then there's many places where batteries make sense with or without solar. Like for me, I already had an LG solar panel system on my house and I added a Tesla Powerwall to it. It's like, and then there's also places where if you live with time of, you know, use rates and you don't qualify for solar, you could still get a battery and then get financial benefit of having that battery system without solar. So by the fact that they're putting this together, it raises a couple of questions. 
um, are they basically trying to build a moat around their business by linking these two things together? Because the Powerwall is very popular. And by pulling it in like this, it creates a system where it's like, it's like an Apple ecosystem. They're creating an ecosystem that you have to buy into. And if you don't want the whole package, tough luck. Um, I know Elon's talked about moats and not being a fan of moats, so that doesn't seem to jive with me. And I hope that's not the case. Um, the other question was, are they battery constrained? Is this a way to try to basically dial back how many power walls they have to supply because they know this is going to reduce demand by doing this? So if they're cell constrained, this is a way to get around that and reduce the wait times for power walls. Or are they trying to increase the size and scope of their virtual power plant system? Because they're bundling batteries with every installation now that in theory could increase the number of batteries that will be integrated among all the cities where they're selling and installing solar, which could make larger virtual power plant systems. And then the last thought I had was, or is this kind of a big middle finger <laughs> to the utilities? Because it's like part of the rationale was it's going to be easier to install, which means you have to do less like uh, things with the utility to make it work because you're not, they're not going to worry about the overproduction of solar entering the grid system because the power walls can be managing it all. So maybe it's a way to kind of like cut the utilities out of this equation completely. So it's the fact that there's not a lot of explanation around this. The end result for the customer experience is the part that's driving me nuts with this change because there are so many customers that just want the power wall and there's so many customers that just want the solar and putting them together is creating an economic mess for a customer choice. And if I was in the market for solar, this would just and just take Tesla off the equation for me because in my area, the equation for batteries is less it's not as great as it is in California, like where you are, you have time of use rates. So it's a, it's almost a no brainer, but in some areas of the country, it's just not. What's, what's your take on this? <laughs> I was really, I think you broke, I think you broke that down from all the different perspectives. You know, it, it's so funny. When I was talking with installers, I work with a company called DroneQuote, who there are some of my friends uh, who started a company and they, they kind of reversed the process of buying solar to go, look, why don't you call us up? We'll do a little drone survey. You don't talk to anybody. And then we'll send us information and you'll get quotes and then you can go from there. You don't deal with salespeople. Solar salespeople are the worst. Like Nothing will make you not want to go solar like dealing with a solar salesperson. Um, the few I've spoken with, uh, you know, it almost came to blows. I felt like they didn't even know as much <laughs> as I did about solar and they're telling me all kinds of stuff. So I was asking them, what happens now when Tesla is going to eat your lunch for $2 a watt? which at that time in California, the prices were probably closer to three a watt, which means who's going to buy solar from anybody not named Tesla. So to me, in a way, this is a relief for some of those companies, right? Because now yeah. there's a lot of solar jobs out there and there are people who have capacity. And don't forget that now what Tesla's done is they have married their Powerwall shortage with solar. They had, they could have, there were panels ready to be bought that they could have bought and sold. Now they won't because mm -hmm. they're stuck with Powerwall output. They've basically married those two together for better or for worse, to your point about the moat, which I did not think they were about. Um, it does appear that they now want to do that, which is weird for the solar business because you're not doing your solar business any favors and Powerwall sales were never huge because you never had enough output anyway. But I think this is actually kind of a win for solar installers because there's a, 
there's no shortage of solar panels. Like the level of commoditization for the solar panel is massive. There's just so many of them out there. And there's a lot of green new jobs. In fact, I think you mentioned this. A lot of the new jobs being created in the economy that were, you know, lost to, like as we've lost coal jobs and other jobs have been green jobs in things like solar panel installation. So I was kind of thinking if Tesla keeps lowering the price like they are, that'll make it tough to compete. But in a way, I think they might be breathing a sigh of relief. And as far as Tesla's plan here, I, I really don't know what their plan is. I, it, to your point, the microgrid uh, or somebody in the comment section mentioned a microgrid. Maybe you want to do, you know, uh, virtual power plants. That might be where they're headed, meaning, hey, if we're going to take the investment to put up solar in your house, really our end game is that for 10 years we could, you know, make some sort of a service fee while we make you money or something. I don't know. Um, interesting. Yeah, it's it's there. What's been going on in the Tesla energy side of the business, specifically for the consumers, not the mega pack stuff, it's been giving me whiplash over the past few weeks. Like it's like I I can't make heads or tails as to why they're making the changes they're making. It's really like with the solar roof, now with the solar and the Tesla Powerwall stuff going on, it's like I'm just confused as to what their game plan is because it it's it's not clear yet, and I think they need to have. They honestly need a presentation where they can walk us through of like, here's here's our plan for the next five years for Tesla Energy. They need to kind of walk us through that because right now it's it's looking really slapdash and odd to me. So, I think you're you're right. The one thing that I think they probably do get by combining these is maybe a little more margin. So yeah. if we factor like, you know, a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour, the Powerwall has like let's say like fifty hundred bucks worth of batteries. There's other components in there as well, but there's probably a healthy margin on that product. Um, solar, though, especially because they were undercutting the market so much by selling it for two dollars a watt, they're probably making it. They're probably making no money on that, uh, or very little margins on that. And it's like, then why bother? You make good margins on everything else. You're making twenty percent on every Model Three and Y. Why would you want to get into a low margin, high volume business and and, and that has huge ramifications in terms of needing service people? and roofers and all. And that's really where they suffer. We talked about this last week. It's not core to what you're good at and it's low margin. Uh, I never actually understood that actually by, by getting so cheap. But now with the Powerwall, suddenly the, the prices are a little more inflated. There's a little more meat on those bones for them to, to make some money. But yeah, uh, I think this one, I'm sure this will probably dominate. It, it already is dominating the uh, the comment section, but yeah. at the Q&A portion, I'm curious yeah. what everyone thinks about this and if they have any more information. Um, but I think this will be one that we revisit. The, the second story that's kind of, it's funny. It's like, I don't understand what they're doing here. But at the same time, this next story, Tesla is unlocking Powerwall 2 with more power through a software update. This is one of those where we talk about why we love our Teslas and you get the overnight software updates in your car and it, suddenly it goes faster. They're doing that with the Powerwall now. And they're increasing the power output by up to 50% depending on wh what year your Powerwall is created in, because clearly they've made changes over the years. But up to a 50% increase in power output is just, it's kind of nuts. Because I mean, it's like right now, a Powerwall, um, it's five kilowatts continuous output, seven kilowatts peak. But when you're talking about up to 50%. Now you're talking about maybe around seven kilowatts continuous and maybe eight or nine peak. It's almost like having, it's almost like having two power walls. That's how much they're kind of increasing this in a way. And right. And I have one power wall 
and it wasn't it's not quite enough to cover me and if this software if this software update comes out and gives me that 50 percent increase now my Powerwall can cover everything in my house aside from me charging an ev at the same time so where i was worried about a blackout and my Powerwall like not be able to handle everything well those days are gone now i don't have to worry i won't have to worry about it that that's just kind of insane um what's your take on on this the, the, the only caveat I will say for you, Mr. Farrell, in the cold, that might not ring true. So I think what yep. they'll probably do is they're going to have some system where the, the max output is going to be a function of, of, of your conditions. Sure. The other yeah. thing, too, is when they did the critical load panel for you, the, the, the circuits in your house that would be backed up if the power went down, things like your air conditioning were not backed up, right? I don't have a critical load panel. So your entire house is backed up? Off of wow. one battery, which is why it's like if if yeah. the power went out, I would have to make sure certain things don't come on because I could I could overload the you battery. You could overload it, okay. Right, but with Got this it. update, it reduces that risk. Well, the big things like if you have a double oven, that's pretty big. The bigger than that would be like an air conditioning and the compressor. Yep. The air conditioning kicks on. So for that, you're not gonna have to worry about having it having it too cold, which is when they'll probably throttle the power output down. That won't be a problem when it's air conditioning season, right? So yep. this will really help you. For for us, since I have a critical load panel, I would have to pay somebody to come and move my air conditioning <laughs> over now because if this happened, I could run my air conditioning. I wouldn't want to because you would deplete a power wall in about two hours. Yeah. Uh, my air conditioning is using about 4,000 watts, 4 kilowatts, so you'd deplete a power wall really quick. And that's not the point. Like if the power is out, you got to suffer a little you got to buckle down and turn the fans on and, and keep the refrigerators running, right? So, um, but it's just so cool to think about. So think about this. A couple of years go by, and now we're hearing about this, right? So imagine that they have the the telemetry data, the the the, uh, the analytics, the you know the the markers that they're they're tracking, and we're all customers. They've been watching us. They know that the peak outputs and and five thousand kilowatts is already a ton. It yeah. could technically power my air conditioning today. It just it was so close to the edge they didn't include it. And let's say there's some measure. Okay, a year goes by, and we're going to charge it to full and measure the voltage and see the capacity. And or there's some internal way that they were checking, and they were finding, yeah, we, we you know we had a safety factor that was way conservative just to make sure the batteries are preserved. And it's it's happening. The batteries are lasting really well. We think we can easily cover the ten year warranty on it. So. Let's go. Let's let's ratchet up the output. Uh, I mean, think about think about a company that operates like that. That is refreshing. And uh, you know, I hope every company learns from how Tesla does stuff. They they make a product that they could just over the air uh, update. And it's not just little things like a new feature. We're talking like the max power output, which requires a hardware to be in place for that as well. So incredible. Such a cool story. It also shows how safe they were playing it in the beginning. It's like they wanted to make sure this battery was the safest it could be, so they played conservative with what power it could do. And after enough data comes in, they realize, hey, we could we could jack this up and it's still perfectly safe. That's really cool. Yes, the last story of the afternoon is one that we probably should talk more about uh, on this show. NASA picks SpaceX to land the next Americans on the moon. So this is a picture of the lunar lander. Uh, it's I have a picture down here from Everyday Astronaut. He's got some really nice details about this, but this is the Starship lunar equivalent. So you can see how there's there's some different variants out there, and this would be the one that will take us to the moon. What's interesting is it has no fins because 
the moon pretty much has no atmosphere. There's no air. There's nothing to to have flight control surfaces for. So that's the shape it takes. And you got to love everything about this is just such a cool story, right? Artemis is the name of the program that NASA has undertaken. Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. Um, so it's just a perfect name. And there's even a better connection because as part of the, the, the first few astronauts that go to the moon now in the 21st century, one of them will be a woman. So it's like everything's coming full circle. And, and uh, I just find this story wildly fascinating. So the way this would work is NASA would still be getting to space with their SLS, their Space Launch System, which is a rocket system that was kind of a, uh, a hodgepodge, a, a blend of a lot of different things that they had laying around pretty much. It was a, a low-cost approach to building a new rocket launch system. And uh, it'll take four people on board uh, the, Orion, the Orion spacecraft, at which point they will transfer to the HLS, the Human Landing System, and head over to the moon. Um, it sounds straight up like science fiction. Until you remember, we've already done this before uh, at a time when calculators were the size of a room. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, we should be able to pull this off, and it's amazing. You know, it's funny. Part of why I think space is amazing for me is a lot of the comments I've gotten on my Starship video, I think people are pessimistic just in general about life. Like, oh, we're never, this is not going to happen. And I'm thinking, you're going to be shocked. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen really quickly. In the next yes, couple it of years, it's going to be amazing, right? What's shocking about this too, the firm fixed price approach of how they contracted this is yeah. less than $3 billion, which is not a lot of money considering that the original Apollo program I think it was well north of $200 billion, you know, adjusted for inflation and everything else. So it's wildly efficient as well. And that's why SpaceX was chosen, because they are approaching it from this perspective, right? Every flight test that you've seen so far, SN10 and 11, well, all those lessons learned are going to eventually make their way to Lunar Lander because they kind of share the same platform. So this is where the uh, the SpaceX's advantages are going to really shine in in the next 21st century space race, if you will. And I'm, I just love this story. It, it, I'm, I'm glad I have my kids are watching these events as they happen. Um, it's hard to explain to them, like when they get scrubbed for like bad weather. And my son's like, what have I been doing for the last hour? But short of that, <laughs> short of that, yeah. it's uh, wildly inspirational. And I love that. That's, that's just something I, I think we all need more of. The fact that SpaceX is driving the cost of going to space down so far, the article even mentioned how SpaceX had the lowest bid by a wide margin. Like, like it it was it, it really just came down to money. It was the ultimate decision maker for NASA. But also on top of that, they have reusable rockets and that whole aspect of it. So it's like SpaceX really earned this win, and it just it's it's so exciting to see how fast the the space race is going to be heating up over the next five years so much. And over the next decade, it's going to be mind-blowing what's going to be going on. I, I And <laughs> I'm a huge space nerd, and it's going to be really exciting to think I'm going to finally see somebody walking on the moon in my lifetime. I was, you know, I've never, I've never seen it. It's like, it's going to be so cool to be alive for another human being to get back to the moon again. It's, I can't It was wait. the only, it was the only cool thing our parents had over us until now. <laughs> until now. <laughs> Yep, I love the story. Absolutely. Well, that let's was... hope they keep the Christ. Let's hope they keep the prices controlled and not like yeah. the solar glass roof. 
Oh, jeez. <laughs> they upped the contract to $6 billion overnight. <laughs> so thanks everybody for watching. And as usual, we're live every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And you can always listen to us on the podcast version at viceversa.show. As always, thanks so much for watching and we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.